this one jungle section, I, I couldn't tell you how long it was. It, we definitely hit it through the night. We, I remember actually we slept right before we entered into the jungle. Like I remember sleeping on the road for 30 minutes, knowing we were going into something that was going to be really tricky nav all night long. The jungle just, it was like, it was pretty flat. And how we navved through that, I, I couldn't tell you. Welcome to The Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. In adventure racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Today, we are joined by Jen Seger. Jen is a racer, coach, and longtime member of the adventure racing scene. She's raced all over the world and brings many stories to us today. She also brings her expansive knowledge and experience to our listeners with a special focus on the beginner racer. Following our recording, Jen was kind enough to send over a discount code for any Dark Zone listeners who may be interested in her online spring AR courses. Head over to www.jensegger.com, that's J-E-N-S-E-G-G-E-R.com, and click on the 4-8 to eight hour sprint adventure race training course. The listener-specific code is DARKZONE as one word. Thank you, Jen, for doing this, and thank you all for joining us at The Dark Zone. Well, first things first, um, Jen Seger, known as Siegs. Welcome to The Dark Zone. Happy to have you here. For those listening at home, Jen is a well-established adventure racer, coach, outdoor enthusiast, educator, and we're delighted to have Jen join us today on The Dark Zone. Um, Spoiler alert. This episode is going to lean heavily on the beginning racer, what he or she can do to get ready for their first race, to give it a shot. We recognize that adventure racing takes a leap of faith, and sometimes you just get rolling and get started and see what happens. So, Jen, welcome to the Dark Zone. Why don't you begin by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? Well, hey, thanks, uh, first of all, so much for having me uh, on the show today. This is great. I've been really looking forward to our, our chat. So good to be here. Um, yeah, I am hailing from Vancouver Island uh, on uh, the coast of British Columbia. So uh, I'm born and raised here and just actually moved back home. I spent the last 20 years uh, in the great uh, coast mountain range of Squamish. And about six months ago, we made the transition back to Vancouver Island uh, for various reasons, uh, family being one of them, but also a great playground here for uh, all the endurance sports that uh, I do, uh, my family does. So it's been a bit of a transition time, but um, it's good. It's good we're settling in. Excellent. Very nice. And as um, as an outdoor person, you know, you, you live in heaven up there. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, you know, not far from the mountains, not far from the ocean. Clearly, you've invested your time and your effort in your outdoor pursuits, adventure racing being one of them. Um, talk to us a bit about your adventure racing career, big races you've done, teams you've worked with, experiences, things like that. Yeah, it's been a long, a long go. Um, you know, and I really consider adventure racing, it's a lifestyle. Um, I, I think I've been involved in the sport for about 20 years. And I, let's see, I'm turning 42 this year. So I was, yeah, I think I was around 1920 when I got into it. So I started really, really young um, and uh, have just sort of, you know, growing with the sport and it, it's come and gone in my life in various capacities over that time. Um, but yeah, because I've got my start really, really early. Uh, I was uh, finishing up a university degree in Australia 
And like quite a few other people, I saw the Eco Challenge on TV and it grabbed me right away. I saw, um, you know, the likes of Robin Benacassa and some of those um, other top women at the time. And I just was like, oh, there's the sport for me. Like, that's what I want to move home and do as soon as I'm done over here in Australia. And um, I'm going to give it a go. It just there was something about the sport that uh, really um, captivated me. So I moved home and uh, instantly moved to the big mountains uh, of Whistler Squamish so that I could just be sort of submerged in those mountains and have, um, yeah, good, good climbs, um, rugged terrain just right at my fingertips. And so from there, I just threw myself into the sport. I started racing with um, a lot of local teams uh, just to get the experience. I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how to ride a mountain bike at that time. I remember you know, living in a world-class Mecca in Squamish, BC here of, uh, of mountain bike trails. And I didn't know how to ride a bike. Like you saw a route and it was, um, <laughs> you know, it was like the most terrifying thing. So it was a steep learning curve. Uh, but within a year of just getting experience and just being so hungry to learn the sport, I quickly had teams calling me from everywhere to be like, Oh, Hey, would you come be our female? We, you know, we're racing here, we're racing there. And before I knew it, I was, uh, just flying all over racing for different teams. And, um, so I got the experience, you know, uh, quickly. And, um, I think I just proved that I was w willing to just lay it all out on the course. I was willing to, to suffer, to give it my all. Um, you know, I wasn't afraid of the blisters that came with it. Uh, I love the sleep deprivation. Um, you know, I, I quickly sort of realized that this was my thing, the, the endurance side of it. Um, so yeah, so I realized too, it was a ticket to travel the world. And so I just started saying yes and racing for various teams. I felt like I was living out of airports. You know, I was probably racing like twice a month, uh, rarely even unpacking the mountain bike, you know, it just sort of became something elected here by the door. Right. <laughs> you totally did. Right. Like hoping it was going to work for the next race. And, exactly. um, you know, and then things just escalated really, uh, quickly from there. Um, I think a big turning point was uh, we were racing. I was racing for more of a local team um, out of Vancouver, um, the world championships in Newfoundland. And I couldn't tell you what year that was. Um, one of my first big expedition races. And anyway, I ran into at that time uh, who was racing a, uh, under the name Dart. I don't know if you remember Dart. Um, oh, very famous race. Yep. yep, yeah, race to yep. Yeah, so, yeah, so I ran into the team of Dart out there and – we, after the race at the after party had a good chat and they were looking for a new female to join their team and they were Seattle based at the time. And so I thought, great. Uh, yeah, I'm looking for a new team. I'm looking to go harder and, and push harder and sort of see where I can take this. I, I realized quickly it was, it was my thing. And so we started to meet up at uh, sort of neutral ground, just south of the border uh, uh, in Washington. They'd come up from Seattle and I'd come down just for the Bellingham area. And we started to do team trainings and the team clicked really well. And I would spend the next 10 years really racing um, for Dart, which we became uh, Team Noon Sport Multi. And, uh, and that was sort of the next, the next decade of racing, was really growing into a world-class team, um, learning together and just traveling the world, doing these different races. Your, your, uh, your growth in adventure racing does, doesn't follow a really uncommon trajectory, right? There's 
people very often, I mean, I joke that the people at home who listen to the dark zone have a bingo card, right? And they, everyone just checked off eco challenge on their dark, on their dark zone bingo card because everybody references eco challenge, right? And I feel like I should send Mark Manette a check from time to time. He has enough of them, but I should send him a check for how he acted as such a, a force in getting people into adventure racing. And it clicked. And so you have that, that Venn diagram where things lay over each other that we see this really appeal, appealing produced event on TV. There's a lean towards the outdoors. There's the ability, there's the privilege to be able to go and race and all those, those tumblers kind of come together. Very often when experienced racers talk about their experience, they tend to focus on the, their, 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 their dart level experience, right? I race with this really, really strong team. For those who are new and are listening to the podcast at home, when you look back on the early days of your racing and you dipped your toe in the water and you want to see what kind of person you could be, what was the what part of the event racing skill set, whether it be the navigation, whether it be the trekking, the gear preparation, the nutrition, where did you find yourself having a bit of a delta? Where did you struggle a little bit in the beginning when you first started racing? What was hard for you at first? I think I would have to probably say it was it was probably the mountain biking, um, the technical side of it. And you know, I remember riding with um, Ryan Van Gorder and Cyril J. Rion, who were on the team. And we we found a way to really improve my skill set really quick because, you know, essentially what we would do is sandwich me in the middle of them. I would follow one of their tires. The other would be behind me coaching. And we, you know, through team training, but then through racing, it just elevated my skills so fast. Um, and I quickly realized, too, though, this was like, you have to work on your weaknesses. So even as a coach today and how I work with people, you know, we look at, okay, here's the things that they're bringing to the table. They're strong at or comfortable with. And then it's like, what's the areas of your game that we need to elevate. And that's where you're going to have to put the skill set and the time into practicing. So I'd say that was one thing. Um, I really though just tried to learn everything I could about it. So, you know, there was a lot of the sleep deprivation part of it, uh, which I didn't mind at all, but it was a bit of a learned skill. So I would, you know, living at that time, I was young, you know, I was working three jobs at a time, but I would head out after work. Um, so I'd go a full day of work, not sleep. And then I'd go into a night and I would go out, you know, in my local area, out riding my bike, hiking, I'd put together some kind of little course, maybe solo, maybe have somebody join me, go through the night, then continue on to work the next day. And then from there, I would um, go to sleep. So, you know, I started to just learn that skill, uh, how it felt and got really comfortable uh, pushing through the dark and uh, working through all the, you know, the things that happen when you're, when you're sleepy. Yep. So, yeah. You, you laugh when you think about it, right? Because in, in the world of event, in the world of endurance training, and there's a lot of triathletes out there and there's marathon runners, not very often is somebody giving advice by their coach. Well, here's what you do. Go work a full five-day week and enjoy your five-day week at work. And then when you get home on Friday night, put your stuff down and have a dinner and then give your family a hug and a kiss and then get on your bicycle and leave your house like at seven o'clock on a Friday night and come back Saturday morning. Like That's a pretty uncommon training strategy. But to your point, that's an effective strategy for getting used to the sleep deprivation, which was a challenge for everybody. Coming back to your, your mountain biking question, it was interesting there because what it required you to do was you had to, um, I use the word humble, you had to humble yourself to acknowledge the fact that you had a, a weakness, that you had to get better at something. And you had to agree to, to ride between two experienced riders and take advice. And then they, your teammates, had to recognize the fact that you too had that challenge and they had to be patient with you. When you do your coaching, what do you tell newer racers about team dynamics? What do you share with them? 
there's oh, so many aspects. So I think when it comes to team, um, you know, the first thing is, is it's making sure everybody's on the same page with the same goals um, and being open with what your strengths, what your weaknesses are. And I think also though, you know, in those pre-months discussions, it's laying out a plan for here's how I'm going to personally work on my skill set in my aspects of the game. Um, here, you know, you kind of identify those and you're, you're upfront and honest with them. Um, and if, if everybody does that, you know, kind of what you're coming in with, uh, amongst your teammates. Right. So I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's really important. And then it's, it's committing and putting, putting the time into it. Um, and then when you're with your team, um, it's knowing the areas that where different people have to step up to help other, to help their teammates out. Right. So there might be different sections where, you know, somebody's even coming off an injury and someone's got to take their bag for them to make it up and down certain hills or just you just know someone might need more help with a toe on the bike. Um, but, you know, I've heard you chat, chat about it on the podcast before and it comes down to leaving your ego at home. Um, you know, you, you can't progress in the sport, I don't think. And you know, really reach those top levels. If you come in with an ego, um, you've got to say, yeah, here's where I need help. You need to be able to ask for help and you need to be able to accept help when, when it's given. So I think, um, it's really important when choosing teammates, right. That you, uh, you know, those personalities and, and, uh, people aren't afraid to just, you know, yeah, accept the help and, uh, say, say where they're, when they're struggling, what they need. What was the other thing that you brought value to? Obviously there's growth in the beginning, right? You mentioned mountain biking as, as a challenge for you. You came into the experience, though, with some skill set along the way. What did you bring to your team right away as a beginning racer? I think for me, uh, well, one, I came from an ultra running background. Uh, I had been doing a lot of running, so like super strong on my feet. Um, really love that. But I'm also just a driver forward. Um, I, I remember my early days of racing, having a hard time actually settling down for sleep when the, you know, when the team would agree, okay, we're doing an hour or two hours of sleep or something. And I really struggled with that part because I just want to keep driving forward. Um, so it was hard to get that, that body to, to calm down. I'm just being super competitive. So, um, you know, I think I tried to be a teammate and still do that my team can depend on me that I'm not going to throw the towel in. I'm, I'm good with being uncomfortable. You know, I love that. I love competing against the other teams that are around us. Uh, and that, that's something that was just, that's always been a part of me. So, you know, I'll always be that one to drive, drive forward and, and keep pushing. I remember one of my earlier racers, uh, races, I was doing a, um, it was a, my, my first adventure race ever was a 30 hour adventure race. It was the, one of the longest days up here in New York. And I had okay. up with a, a person. I, I literally met him the night before the race. And we were doing this race together. We were probably 20, we were well over 20 hours into the race. We were into the next morning, right? So it was like a seven o'clock start and it was probably nine o'clock the next morning. So it was 26 hours in and we were at a zip line section at Hunter Mountain, not far from Phoenicia and Tannersville, the Catskills in New York. Okay. And we're waiting for the zip line. And those of us who've done those know that zip lines are tough though, because the race kind of, it's a choke, right? Because only so many people go at a time. So we're all sitting around my brand new teammate was like, okay, I'm going to take a nap. And he laid down for like 20 minutes and he was out for 20 minutes cold. And that was the weirdest concept to me that you'd climb up this ski slope to get to the zip line and be all full of adrenaline and energy. And then be able to be like, okay, I'm out for 15 minutes. And then he was out cold and shook him. He woke up and off we went to your point. That's a learned skill set. Like you would arrive and all of a sudden you have, you have a two hour window where you have some time calming yourself down, getting your feet dry, getting into your bag to sleep a little bit. That's a really weird concept for a lot of people to wrap their heads around when they start racing. 
Oh, it really is, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, and I think it's, it, it's a bit of a learned thing. You um, eventually, you know the benefit of being able to rest quickly. So, you know, just fast forward 10 years from there and, you know, the last decade of racing, it doesn't phase me now. It's what we do. I know how important it is. The minute you can close your eyes and, and decompress and, yeah, bring it down a notch um, and let that little bit of repair help happen is so essential to how the next you know, 24 hours of a long race plays out. <laughs> and what's interesting though, is that that then goes to other parts of your life. So, so you could literally be anywhere and go to sleep. Like, you know, oh, I'm in an airport and I have 20 extra minutes and you put your head down on the table and you're out cold. Like I could sleep in that corner, no problem at all. So it's an interesting, unique skill set that we develop, but, but sleep deprivation is, is this whole other podcast topic episode. And never mind the stress that falls upon the team when people are sleep deprived. How oh, just, yes two, three days. I have seen people act in ways I've never seen, and I've acted in ways that have blown my mind. Talk to us a bit about the later race dynamics, the stages. How do you help your team hold it all together when you're 24, 48, 36 hours into a race, 40 hours in? What What is your self-talk when you're doing those things? What do you tell yourself to keep it all together? Oh, man. I mean, I think at that point, you're breaking it up. Um, you know, leg by leg, just trying to really stay in the moment um, and take care of yourself, but take care of your teammates too. So it's really keeping on top of um, your fueling. That's something that's really huge. And actually, I talked to a lot of my athletes about that. Like a lot of times when you start to get those, those huge energy dips, first thing you go to and, and sleepy, the first things that you look at is, you know, when's the last time you, you've eaten? Because that sheer intake of calories will help, you know, it boosts energy. It, it makes you more alert. So, um, you know what, on the teams that I race for, when someone I eat, we pass the food around. When someone else pulls out snacks, you know, same thing happens. So you're always just, whatever you're doing, you're making sure your teammates are doing it too. It's not just a, a me thing. It's a, what do we need um, sort of approach to things. So I think that's um, really important. Um, you know, racing with good lights really helps at night as well. So um you know, we spend a lot of that time in the pre-race prep of, of uh, races, you know, making sure, you know, are we all running the same light system? And if we are, okay, what are our batteries looking like? How many batteries are we all bringing? Like, there's a lot of thought that goes into that. Where have we placed them into which bins? Um, you know, and then when we're on the course, okay, are we running these on low? Or are we going to run on high? Is one person running on high? You know, you're conserving, you're just sort of managing your time based on how many you know, uh, dark hours you're going to be moving through. Um, but By of the course, way, yeah, is that, that's the super intricate details that you get into in a race. Like mm -hmm. the idea, like in your bins, like writing down, like taping the race plan to the inside of your bin, you know, doing the math on the lights, counting in the calories, right? How many calories we need per hour. And I think that's something that a lot of newer racers, because, you know, you don't, you don't know what you don't know when you begin racing, right? But you've just ticked yeah. off so many important things for people to think about coordination between teammates in regards to gear. You know, you know, when possible, running the same light system, you know, which is a luxury that not every yeah. team has. But, you know, what are you going to totally. do at, at two to five a.m.? Right. Because that's that's those are the witching hours. Right. At like from like one o'clock in the morning to like daylight, like three o'clock in the morning. Things are <laughs> things are dark, obviously, but like literally yeah. and figuratively getting to that next section. You mentioned food as being essential, um, making sure that everybody's eating. Um, everybody's eating. And you know what? Good. Yeah. And a good trick to with the everybody's eating thing is when you put your food, uh, you know, in the outer like meshes of your pack, if you've got that. So it's always accessible. 
you know, then it's just somebody else reaching into your pack and pulling out an item and splitting it around. You know, exactly. it's not you needing to dig in there. It's like, oh, yeah, they pulled out a bag of crushed up chips and great. Everybody takes a handful and we all keep moving in that way. You know, everybody's consuming. You don't have to worry. And the idea too, like, because we're so focused on time and movement, if your hydration, if your water is buried behind you, if you don't have access to that, then all of a sudden you, you feel like you just stop drinking. So like, for example, one thing I do is I have the, the water bottles on the front of my pack and I drop the two bike-sized water and it's right there for me to use as opposed to saying to my teammate, go into my bag, get that out for me and hand that to me. So things like that are really essential. That's a really good point. Um, this, and this came up in a question the other day, actually. What I really encourage for most adventure racers and short rate, like, you know, four hour right up to expedition is that you get used to a bottle system versus a bladder system. One bottle so easy for dipping into streams, filling up, adding, if you have to purify to some, but you also know, you know, how um, much you drank. You can, you can keep a better tab on what you're doing versus draining a bladder that you have no idea. And then the next thing you know, you're out. Um, a lot of times I'll carry an empty bladder always in the bottom of my bag. It's with me for the whole race, but it's mainly only going to be used you know, if we're going into a leg where we think there's a water shortage and then you've got that, that capacity to fill up something, but otherwise, you know, it's just in there purely as a backup thing, empty, you know, weighs nothing. And, and if that isn't you your primary it. water source, you could drain it down without the mental weight of wondering how empty is it getting. Exactly. Right? Because you yeah. don't have, because when the bottles are on the front of your pack, or even when you're carrying an algae in the side pouches, you, you could tell how much amount is left. A bladder gets drained down, drained down, drained down. Some folks, myself included, I can't do the bladder sloshing thing. Like that's almost yeah. like, that's like nails on a blackboard. But there's some folks who put that on and off they go. But I've never heard the empty bladder in the pack thing before. I think that's a really, that's a, that's a good piece of advice that I'm going to do myself now. Just throw it in there, have it ready. If you're passing through a stage where you have access to water, fill up and just drink that down and call it a day. Very nice. Yeah, I think it's just a good, a good ability to, to, when you think you're going to need it, like the team might need it, you know, and if everybody's got that, that capacity potentially for two extra leaders, you know, to carry only if they need it, um, it can work out great. You know, I mean, I remember being, we raced in Brazil for many years at a race called Ecomotion, uh, which was a fantastic events being put on there. And I remember we headed out on one uh, trekking leg once and there was literally just no water. It was so hot, uh, hot and humid. And we're working our way through like a cow pasture of some form. And we come across this green, like watered cow trough thing, you know, like it was just so stagnant and it was like, but we had to drink it. Right. We, we were so out of water. Everybody was so parched and dehydrated, you know, and you're like, this is kind of it. They've only yeah, carried the, more. Yeah. <laughs> and we did. Not, we, you know, that, we purified. Nobody got sick. <laughs> you're looking around and there's just cows everywhere. And you're like, this is going to be a really right. hard decision to make. And you're tired. Ty- you, because when you're thirsty, you're not eating and you're not eating. And it's, and just, I guess we're treating the cow water. <laughs> and exactly. <good> right. <laughs> and you do it. You know, these are the funny things of adventure racing. And you go, okay, well, you hope that if you're going to get sick, it doesn't kick in until after. After the race, right? If <laughs> I'm going to get you already. Right. Let it yeah. be when I'm home. Like, oh, right. Right. A couple days left. So, right. you know, just things like that. So I think that's a good trick, good trick along the way. Um, but I really love the bottles. It's so easy so that when we do stop for water, it can be just the quickest, just dip down, fill it up. And away you go. It doesn't have to become a huge, you know, another 20 minute stop of everybody, you know, undoing their packs to get things out. You want to be efficient. Well, that's a so. common team dynamic too. And I, you hear this in other podcasts and, and it comes up very often is have a system in place where you never stop moving. 
Like you're always moving. And when you're in a transition area, you're in a TA and you're getting your gear, touch everything once. Like you don't need to unpack your entire bin, pack it all back together and get going. And these are things that you only learn after racing for a while because you want to maximize that time. You know, the, you know, the dynamic, you know, if it's a 12 hour race and you waste five minutes each hour, you get back an hour of the race. So those things really play a major role there. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there's two strategies we might use um, out there. Typically one is let's say somebody's needing to delay or, you know, stop for some reason. Okay. They might give the five or 10 minute warning. Hey guys, I'm getting pretty warm. Everyone starts thinking about, okay, yeah, I'm getting warm too. Or I have to go to the bathroom or so everyone's got time to start thinking, what would they do if we stopped for two minutes? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to pull out food, rearrange food, take a jacket off, whatever. Um, so that's one way is give the five to 10 minute warning and then everybody stops and then you really make good use of your stop time. The other thing would be you just pass your pack off to somebody. Let's say you need to go to the bathroom. So I might just pass the pack off to a teammate. I stop, go to the bathroom. They keep trekking onwards. You know, I got that time. And then I'm now without a pack. I can easily run, catch back up, grab my pack. And and we're still, everybody's still in motion. No stopping. So two good strategies right there. Once again, communication is key, right? You're saying to your teammates, I need a bit of a break here. I'm not feeling too good. Got to change a layer. Um, you know, a common thing I've seen very often is you want to start a race a little bit on the colder side because the minute that you get rolling, you get your, I always dress as if it's five to 10 degrees warmer. You get started. All of a sudden the heat comes up. Um, very often if a race starts going uphill, by the time you get to the top of that hill, you're going to have to take layers off here. You're not careful, right? So there's all those, those dynamics going right there. When you look back at your, your your racing career and the different races that you've done, and I think you might be a bit like me where it's all kind of a blur. Like there are some races like like Cliff White, for example, from Strong Machine. Cliff, if you're out there, compliments to you. Cliff will remember every single dynamic of every race he's ever done, where he's like, you know, on the third leg of the fourth day, we found the checkpoint next to the stream. For me, it's one big blur. I don't know where you are like that, but when you look back on your races and all the races that you've done and all the different places, what jumps out of you as an experience that you you just really enjoyed? A, a race that kind of everything clicked and it went well. What do you remember when you think about that? Well, just back to your point there, yeah, it is a blur. In fact, even once we've crossed a finish line, I really... I have a hard time recalling back where we were at, you know, until there's got to be some moment or something that really stands out. And I'll be like, sorry, what leg? Like, really? We were there. Like I, it's a gone thing. I, I think I race so much just in the moment and then yeah, it it's gone. Um, so yeah, you know, I think, gosh, there's been, there's been so many highlight races and standout moments and, and, and things like that. Um, but you know, I, you can now, I can never say that a race went like so smooth and so perfectly from start to finish. That's just not the nature well, of well, adventure that's a good racing. Point. That, right? That's a really, and I appreciate you bringing that up because for those who are new to adventure racing, and once again, if you're coming from different sports, you'll run a marathon or even an ultra and you'll, you'll do a bicycle racer and it will just sort of flow, right? The experience will just go great and it's no problem at all. Adventure racing by its semi-chaotic setting, right? You have map and compass navigation, a lot of gear, sleep, food, feet, all of that, something is going to go wrong. And it tends to be the races where things go wrong, we remember better. So to your point, Absolutely. when did it when did it go south on you guys? When did it just go haywire? <laughs> oh gosh. I mean I, I, I couldn't even just comment on one. I there, 
I feel like it's been, there's just been so many, so many races where, <laughs> you know, things just don't, things just don't go as planned or you weren't expecting things. Um, it's, it's the highs and the lows, but that, that's really what makes the sport, right? Okay. Like for instance, um, you know, I think we were racing, it was a world championships in, um, Spain, Spain or Portugal, one of those races. And, you know, Spain, how the Europeans, Portugal, whatever, we'll figure it out somewhere. <laughs> it, was, it, was one, it was one of the years. Okay. <laughs> we're speaking Portuguese, you're speaking Spanish. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, what, what makes you know you're over there is because you see the inline skating sections, um, you know, that, that always used to uh, appear in the European races. And so, you know, I remember here we are like super strong team, and, you know, we're, we're trekking up a big mountain, I think up to the top of a ski hill of some form. And, you know, we couldn't inline skate up. Some of the top teams could, but we just tracked, you know, skates are on our back. And we're looking forward, to, in a way, to the downhill thinking, okay, we know we got to come all the way back down this road after. Well, you get to the top and then you actually realize how steep the road is. And I think, you know, for pretty much all the North American teams, we were actually not allowed to rollerblade back down the hill yeah i would just go um, right to the hospital like there would it just wouldn't yeah. happen like i just i would just totally yeah right it's <laughs> terrifying to start with <laughs> but i actually remember the we the course marshals coming out and saying like you guys like skates off you're on your feet you're walking and so it's really demoralizing when you see another european they get to just come in there in their top position and they're flying down the hill and like they're so comfortable, so used to it. And for us, it, we were just hazards, right? So here we are trudging back down the hill and, um, you know, losing time. And now you're worried about, you know, just, you know, the lead teams getting away and you just really, it just exposes a weakness, um, you know, of an element that we just don't have a lot of experience in. And yeah, I've been uh, able to so dodge pretty funny. Me. Yeah. I mean, I came into the sport after the inline skating phenomenon kind of moved, moved on from the sport. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I, I think that my, my, uh, my insurance company, my doctors, my, my family appreciate the fact that inline skating and I didn't have yet to have a chance to mix it up in racing. Um, <laughs> totally. and, and, and so you're right. We were, we were in Scotland and, um, once again, day two, day three, day 900, I don't remember, but we had this huge trekking stage. We were coming down the backside of these massive mountains and we're walking down the trail, the zigzag. So here come the Americans and we're taking our time stepping down this trail. And to our right is this German team. And they're just taking these huge steps, like katung, yeah. katung, katung, right by us. I mean, strong, strong racers. I mean, Europeans just, it's in their blood. I also think too, I think they have a natural cultural advantage because the orienteering and the outdoors are just so much more embedded in their culture. I think we come to the party a little late, as, as some of us do as Americans. Yeah, yeah. I think we see that time and time again, you know, Um but it's always exciting, you know, and I think, isn't that why we do the sport? Because you're just ready for a challenge that's going to get thrown at you and you can laugh about it after. I mean, at the time it's, it's horrible. Right, <laughs> and right. then, you know, you, you finish up and you're just like, wow, okay. Like, well, we survived. That was great. And yeah. yeah and on. I think too, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't like to overuse the, I think, I think in the, in the ultra sports, multi-sport endurance world, I think a lot of people make a lot of hay out of, you know, this is training for life, right? I think that's, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is a sport in which we just go out into the, we go out into the woods for X amount of time, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, five days, 10 days. And we just do stuff that we enjoy doing. It's fun for us to do it. Right. And so I don't really get too much into the idea like, well, this is, this is training for life, but we have to admit that there are life lessons. And one thing, for example, is, is that 
you know, I, I would think that adventure races are better equipped for when things go south in other parts of the world, whether it be a job situation, a family situation. They're just like, this is what it is. This is the, this is what's happening. And this is we're going to have to wrap our head around us and figure out a way to get through this. And I think that adventure racing kind of calluses, builds that muscle inside of us. Um, I hear that very often with adventure racers that they tend to be relatively better equipped at managing the more challenging aspects of, of life that come on. Um, that's what I, found. Sure. I don't know. I yeah. don't know what you found. Yeah, no, no, I would, I would totally agree with that, you know? Um, and I think too, that comes with, you know, I, I think about the athletes I work with and that also comes in with just the general training. Like, you know, if, if I said earlier, the train training is a, it's a type of what we do is a lifestyle. And so you're out on weekends and you're, you know, you're putting in some, maybe some big hours and some big adventures and stuff like that. And it's all those little mishaps and things that you learn along the way. Um, you know, so someone heads out just for their big Saturday and then oh, they end up with stomach cramps or oh, the blisters or what, what have you. I mean, that's all learning. That's all just a part of um, that's going to make you more successful in the sport, but also just how do you deal with it? I mean, do you just pack it up and go home? Do you work through it? Do we look at, you know, you get to problem solve constantly. Um, so I even just look at when things go south. It's not, it's not the end of things. It's just purely an opportunity to learn and move on and grow from it. You know, I mean, um, not to take it too serious. Let's be like, yeah, that was a great opportunity presented itself, got to learn, you know, hopefully you can laugh about it later or, <laughs> you know, see it as, a, as a, something positive um, and you move through it. And so to yourself, it is what it is. Here's the, yeah. here's the dynamic we have in front of us. We have to figure this thing out. We're going to figure it out together as a team. We're going to hold it together, right? We're going to, we're not going to cannibalize the team. We're going to stay on our food. We're going to try to rest where we can. And we're going to solve the next problem. Um, have you come across? Is, yeah. Yeah. Have you come across during, and the answer, it's a, it's a leading question, but can you tell us a bit about a time in a race where you and your teammates were just, you had your map in your hand and you were just spinning in circles. Like you had just completely turned around. What's it like when that happens and what do you guys do then? Oh yeah. You know, what stands out really well. Um, I, I want to say 2017, we were racing in Belize at a world qualifier race. Um, great race in the jungle. It was fantastic. And um, this one jungle section, I, I couldn't tell you how long it was. It, we definitely hit it through the night. We, I remember actually we slept right before we entered into the jungle. Like I remember sleeping on the road for 30 minutes, knowing we were going into something that was going to be really tricky nav all night long. The jungle just, it was like, it was pretty flat. And how we navved through that, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, I remember that I, I didn't actually have an active role in that, that section, uh, with the now, but, um, the three guys I was racing with, they just sort of kept taking turns. And I mean, I would have thought we literally were just going in circles. Like it was just, but they kept problem solving just bit by bit. We slowed it right down. And, um, you know, I don't even know what our tracker showed at the end, but it was, we made some, we made the winning move in there, even though it was like, it was 10 hours of darkness in a jungle you would have thought we literally just did circles and circles and circles. And somehow we found the exit out of there. Um, and it was, it was fantastic, but it was just about slowing it down. Um, you know, we made that good decision to sleep prior to going in so that we were actually as alert as possible. You, you were um, in the race. To, you, you were yeah. going into the, you knew that section was coming up and you basically yeah. said, here, we're on the road. Now we're going into that scary place. It's going to be really hard. Let's shut it down here for 30 minutes, catch your breath. 
little food, little drink. And then you, so you almost like created like a bit of your own transition area, your own little dark zone. There we go. There's the title of the show, your own little dark zone to catch your breath before you pushed into the jungle. Yeah. And you know what? We had just left a transition like an hour prior. So it was like leaving a transition. We walked a road to kind of get to where we were going to enter into this jungle at night. Yeah. And we just, we, we had a little 30 minutes there and uh, it's, it made all the difference. So it was just good decision-making, which was based on some experience for sure. Um, but then going into that, so you could be alert knowing that, you know what, like you don't want to have to take a nap in the jungle. Like that was a section we were told to carry a hammock. Uh, so you'd, you'd be elevated. I mean, the snakes, the spiders, it was. You can't get on the was, ground. Yeah. If you get on the ground, it's going yeah, it's, it's to yeah, be on top of yeah. you in 30 seconds. Fully. Yeah. So then, you know, and then it was just really just everybody just staying really composed and <laughs> calm through that section and not, not getting rattled, like taking the time to make the right, uh, you know, nav decisions versus just getting all squirrely and trying to move fast. You know, it's a, there's times to slow it down, do things right. And you're actually going to come out um, ahead. And I think that's where we made the move on nature X, um, you know, another world-class team there. And, um, and that was it. They, they were in there and, and we came out and were able to finish, finish that race up strong. So and there's two things worth mentioning there in terms of navigation, right? You mentioned how you weren't heavily involved in a navigation. One thing I learned very early was that navigation by committee is just a train wreck. Like there's a lead nav, some, someone might be backing her up and that's fine. But when you, when, when you're, when you're the, the person following behind, you know, all of a sudden you start thinking you got a bright idea. That's the best time to sort of sit back and let the navigator be the navigator because it's the person, because it's a, it's a very interesting team dynamic where one person is disempowered, right? You're not the navigator. Your job is to follow support, pay attention and help where you can. And one person is very empowered, but they have the pressure of getting it right. And they have the pressure of the team laying on them. I would be willing to bet that it's moments like that, that the team dynamic is sort of stretched a little bit tighter than it usually is. For sure. For sure. But I think too, you know, in a well-oiled machine that's maybe raced together or is very comfortable with everybody's skill sets, everybody knows their role and, you know, you're not trying to overlap on somebody else, you know, or yeah, you do what you do. Um, you know, and then, and I think it's important for everybody to be involved, being involved to some degree keeps you alert, keeps your mind in the game and to where you're going. So, you know, in, in just general now, like I've got, if I'm not with the map, you know, um, and there's stronger, I typically race with much stronger navigators, <laughs> um, you know, so they're doing all the lead now, but I need to be involved if that's pointing out key features, if that's doing pacing, um, you know, and, and then that's the communication I get down. Okay. We're looking for a road in about five kilometers on our left, whatever it is, but something that keeps everybody active and involved in that, or you're keeping around the time and what, why on the time so that we know, Hey, is everybody eating? It's been an hour is, you know, and you're, everybody can have a role and, and be contributing in some degree. Right. So establishing that before you start and or learning as a team, as you as you progress as a team is, you know, and to that point, don't fall into the trap of thinking that because you're not either a leader backup now that you're not bringing value to that experience, whether it be looking for a big, big navigation feature, keep an eye on nutrition, looking for water sources, like always be focused on bringing more to the table than you're currently bringing. And because to your point, when you're the quote unquote, the fourth person on the team and you're you don't feel like you're contributing then all of a sudden your mind wanders, you get off balance. Every step feels like 10 steps and the team dynamic just kind of crumbles around you. That's, that's a really good totally. piece of advice for the newcomer. You're always bringing value to what's going on in that team. Sometimes it's up to you to search for that value and to look hard for that. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's got a key role on, on that team. Right. Um, and so I think it's finding, yeah, it's finding your place and, um, and that's, what's going to make ultimately the team move faster and the experience be so much more enjoyable, you know, and I know it can take a little bit for people to get the right configuration or the right personalities out there, um, you know, to, to, to mesh and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, see, like highlight, what can I contribute to the team, you know, and, and what's the areas that I might need, you know, I'm not going to be as strong in and yeah, work on those. So, um, a good team travels on its feet and very often foot problems, which they sound like, you know, you bring up foot problems during a podcast. It feels kind of like gross and kind of boring at the same time, but we all realize that if, if our feet fall apart, we fall apart. What have you learned over your years in terms of how do you take care of yourself? Do you, do you foot lube before do you have multiple pairs of socks? Where are you on that? Yeah. What haven't I learned on the, on the foot side of things? So when I started racing, I actually just thought it was a part of the sport. I thought it was a part of, you know, just your feet were trashed. That's what it was. Um, you know, when I was sort of like 20 years old right. and it I just, came it out was just, just, you're going to get blistered and beaten up and it is what it is. And so be it. Yeah. So I, I've got some good protocols that I have followed. And, you know, even when we came out of racing uh, Eco Challenge Fiji a couple of years ago, um, like zero blisters. I think our whole team had perfect feet actually for that matter. So um, it can make a difference. Um, a couple of things is my pre-race prep. So I remove all the calluses from my feet. Okay. And I do that about like a week to a week and a half out, uh, pretty much remove them all. I used to think calluses were good, but really it's like, it acts like, um, like a balloon. And so you've essentially got this dead skin and water gets underneath that create forming the pocket. So, uh, calluses need to go. I don't mean down to like, you know, don't not so raw and down to the feet, but you know, remove them for the most part, trimming the toenails. That's also really important. Um, and then, yeah, about two to three days out, I'll start doing, um, some kind of foot lube, uh, goo on top. And that was actually taught to me by, um, Roy Malone. He's like the master of good feet. Um, so Roy really started to teach that to me, um, on team bones there. So yeah, that starts sort of that two, three days out and, and getting the feet really well lubed. Um, and then when you're on the course, it's taking the time to change out your socks and, and take care of things. You know, I mean, there's no point on day one, somebody just pushing through and they've got a rock in their shoe you know, in the big scheme of things, that 20 seconds to get the rock out makes all the difference at day five in a race, right? So you just take care of your feet early on as best as you can. That dynamic in the beginning when you have like a pebble in your shoe, but you don't want to slow the team down. So ignore the pebble for the purpose, but all of a sudden you're an hour on it and you work a little blister into your foot. Next thing you know, that gets wet, it gets wet, it gets, and all of a sudden you're off to the races and three days later, you can barely walk on your feet. And so you're right about that. And definitely... Um, I mean, one piece of advice I got in the very beginning was, was every opportunity to dry things out, dry them out. Like if you're in a, and if you're in a dark zone and if you're in a spot, shoes and socks off, air everything out, dry it out, go with some powder if you have to. I've heard, and you mentioned Fiji. I heard in Fiji that that was particularly, that was a really big deal because not only would you be wet, but it was a very opportunistic type of bacteria, germs, things like that. Like your feet would get really, really, really chewed up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fiji was unique. Um, like as a lot of the jungle type races are, um, but we really took the time. We thought the race was going to be longer. Um, I think actually I heard you, I was racing with Mary Chandler, um, in that race. And I think she, I heard that on that 
that podcast you did with her, we really did take care of our feet, expecting the race to be longer. Um, you know, and then of course it, it, things wrapped up real quick and, uh, here we were in really good form, ready to, to keep I've going. i heard that and, people who've done that it. race that they, they, they thought it was going to be, they'd prepared for much bigger and it was big. Yeah. It was still Fiji, yeah. it was still, but the, the teams at the pointy end of the race were kind of like, okay, we're done. Like they were, it really kind of snuck done. up on them. <laughs> how, how do you really like that experience? Exactly. How do you like that experience overall? How was it, how did it feel to be part of a big production like that? I mean, it was, it was fantastic. Um, it was just a lot of fun. You know, I don't race, um, the attraction of cameras and being filmed and stuff, you know, that's not really a part of me. That's not why, why I was there. I no interest in that side of things, but I will say, I mean, it was fun. It was fun to be a part of something really big. Um, just that the whole energy of the event. I mean, the course was fantastic. Um, and like a lot of these races, you know, I think that's what makes our sport so unique is you get together in these unique parts of the world and you see all your other race friends that you haven't maybe seen for a couple of years or, you know, it's a big catch up. Um, it's such a friendly sport of competition pre, during and after too. Right. But like, it was just, it was really fun. Um, and then for myself too, um, the race course directors are all uh, friends of mine from the sort of Squamish Pemberton area. That's the, the race course designers. And they of course brought down, you know, the guys working the ropes courses, uh, the guys on the river. Um, those were all people from my town of Squamish. So it was like seeing when I got to all those sections, I, I knew a lot of uh, the race course staff. Okay, and guys. so that was really right. fun to, Good to see you. Well, totally right. Like you're here, you are down in Fiji and I'm about to rappel a waterfall and it's my friend, like, you know, double checking the harnesses or, or, or whatever. So that made it extra fun, but, um, it was great. And, you know, we, we had a good time out there. I mean, we were disappointed with our finish. Um, but, uh, well, and, and for the, for listeners, what, what was your finish for the folks at home? Th- where, did, where did you finish yeah, up? I think we finished 13th, 13th or 14th. Um, you know, we were, we were hoping for a top 10 and, um, and whatnot, but uh, you know, we got we got a couple of those dark zone problems that uh, people would have seen there with the canyons flooding and then stuck on the river, and just things didn't go in our favor. Um, but that's racing, and I've also been in positions lots of times where we are the team that gets through, and then there's some kind of random unexpected closure, and you're through it, and the other teams aren't, and you can't hang on to it. It's like those who know the sport, we know what happens to everybody. Um, Sometimes, it, some, just, sometimes it just goes your way. Exactly. Right. To your if, point, like bad, yeah. bad weather rolls in when you're on the other side of something pretty big, you're, you're, you make a better nav decision and things just go in your direction. You're absolutely right. It's the kind of sport that just, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do as adventure racers that, that help us to have better results, right? That's part of the deal, but there's an element of luck, which exists in every single sport, by the way, but in our sport, it feels a bit more tighter because there's so many compounding factors that go on. Will the, will the gear hold together? Like many racers having a great race and they break their derailleur on their bike. And that's just, it was time for that to go or something silly happens. Like they, they leave. I was at a race one time and it wasn't my team and it probably would have driven me out of the sport. They left the transition area. They were two hours down the road to get to the next checkpoint. They left their, they left their punch card back at the TA and they had to hike the two hours back to get their punch card and then hike the two hours. Like those kinds of things are just, that's, that's the nature of the beast. So to your point, you would have liked a better result, but it is what it is. Exactly. And there'll be, there'll be more races, right? So, um, yeah, it is what it is. And, uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You so, can't dwell on it. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah the only thing, I, the only thing I find myself dwelling on is when, is when I feel as if I did something that let the team down. Yeah. That's, that's okay. the thing. And I think that's part of the, for the beginner, 
you have to be reflective upon your performance. You can't dwell on making a mistake and you have to work hard not to repeat it the next time that you race. Absolutely. You know, on, on all these top teams I, I've raced for, we always debrief at the end. And I think that's really important. Um, I think then everything just, if there's things that need to get said, um, everyone likes to put in their comments and I take anything. Yeah. Really um, seriously that, you know, things that I need to work on. And I'm pretty self-critical too, of like, I know when I'm maybe not on point or, um, you know, just different uh, elements of my game that maybe weren't where I wanted them to be, or came in maybe at a different fitness level or, you know, uh, dealing with some different things. So yeah, that's the only way to improve is to take it. And uh, if if you want to be a better racer, then you just got to take that stuff away um, and work on it and, uh, you know, try to bring it to the next, the next event you do. That requires that sense of humility. The fact that you realize, we all realize that we are, we are perpetual students and that while we get stronger at it, there's still opportunity to grow, to get better at things like that. You know, one thing I've learned, a general rule that I have is that at three o'clock in the morning, when I'm absolutely certain of something, I have to check with two other teammates. We had a race yep. back in the spring where we were in this map. We, we entered this section, was it basically was a series of, a, of, of trails for all, for all train vehicles. And what we didn't realize was that it was built by the local uh, town. It was a really nice set of ATV trails, but they built like six entrances that were all mirror images of each other. Like you went through a gate and it had sort of the cow catcher and we popped out on one side of it. And I thought, oh, here we are. And I just, and I really wasn't doing nav at that point, but I thought I knew where we were going. I said, hey guys, follow me. 20 minutes later, I didn't realize that we had just popped out on the wrong side of it. And if I had stopped to talk to my teammates, who by the way, they were great and they were gracious. And they understood that they could have said stop at any time because they thought we were doing the right thing. That was on me. And so one thing I've learned is that when I'm really, really, really sure of something, especially at night when it's dark, I have to turn to somebody and say, hey, wait a minute. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And hopefully yeah. it kind of lines up. Um, and yeah. I only knew that through. I had to be self-reflective at the end of the experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's it. I think it's, it's looking always for, for ways to improve and, um, and to get better, you know, and, you know, in saying that too, like, you know, I have a personal goal, like I've been racing for a lot of these, uh, these top teams, you know, where the navigation is, is really on point. Um, you know, these guys are good and they, they practice it all the time. And I, you know, I have a personal goal of getting better at, um, at my nav and, um, you know, at some point I would, like to nav, like be the lead nav, um, on a full team. Um, maybe it's going to be an all women's team or something like that. And to take that role. And I know that learning curve is going to be steep as well. Um, and it's just to be able to nav at a faster pace, you know, than what I can do. So I have to, you know, I know when our current navigators, when, when they make mistakes, um, or whatnot, like, Hey, yeah, everyone's going to be in that position at some point. If you want to take, you know, if that's your main role on the team, um, it's a learning thing and, and th- mistakes are going to happen. And so I, at some point that's going to be me. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, you gotta, <laughs> you gonna have to work through it too. So yeah, never being too hard on other people, you know, yeah, it's amazing too. All of a sudden I realized I'm the world's best navigator when I'm not navigating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's so obvious. <laughs> Just go that way. How so, did you not know that? Yeah. I knew that an hour yeah. ago. Um, you mentioned the idea of, of doing a big race with an all women's team. Uh, one, positive outgrowth point for the sport has been the growth of, of all women's teams and women involved in AR. And, and that growth is really very, very strong. Can you talk a bit about what you've seen over the years? You mentioned in the beginning of, of the interview that you were able to do a lot of racing because, you know, you, you were needed because they want to have multi-gender teams. So therefore female racers are go to very high premium. And as a result, you get to race a lot. While that still exists, I'm finding for the most part that there's 
all women's fields are coming down now, all women's podiums. What have you, over your 20 year trajectory, what kind of growth have you seen in that regard? Yeah, so much change. Um, exactly. When I first started racing, um, you know, the opportunities and, and, and needing a, a strong a female, uh, it just, it was like, yeah, it was in very high demand. And now we, I think we're seeing so many new women come into the sport, huge growth in the um, teams, maybe even with two, two women, two men type combinations. I mean, I think even in Fiji, uh, in the top 10 was two different um, two women, two male teams, which is great. Um, I had actually never even raced with another female until I raced with Mary at, uh, at in Fiji. And, and it was fantastic experience, you know, um, and, you know, she's, as we all know, solid as a rock. So that was great. Um, and then, yeah, the, the four women teams, it, it's great. I think it just adds a whole new dimension. Um, I, I think it's fantastic when you see four women out there just taking on, um, the sport and showing that a whole new category can exist. And, uh, it's going to be neat to see where the sport goes. I mean, I'm not sure if we're always going to, the premier division will always be, you know, mixed gender. That's also, you know, it's neat too, because it does add that one element, um, you know, but it, I, who knows what the future is going to hold, but there's been growth for sure. We have to give a lot of credit to the, the, um, the founders of adventure racing by insisting on the very, in the very beginning that, that multi-gender teams will only be, will, would be eligible for prize money, premier teams. I think that really, that spoke to their yeah. early ethic of bringing everybody into the sport. And I, it's interesting because that decision made well over 25, 30 years ago has such a, a compounding effect because if you allowed single gender teams to be the premier teams, you would not have seen the amount of female racers that you see today. It was not going to happen naturally. So sometimes you do kind of legislate yourself into equity and equality. I think that was very strong. I interviewed somebody not too long ago who's coming to Expedition Oregon as part of a, a four member all female team for, for, uh, for, for Bend. So we'll see how they do. And then are they getting ready and they're getting strong. And we're seeing more and more of that, um, the growth here on the East coast of, of, of women's podiums and things like that. So I think that's a great, as a, as someone who, who loves this sport and wants it to be inclusive and involve a lot of people, I'm really proud of the fact that we're seeing that kind of growth. Um, yeah, aside I from the, great. I think I, I think there's like, you know, I, um, I'm thinking about my adventure racing coaching roster and I would say probably 70% of those adventure racer athletes are women, you know, who are reaching out to just keep elevating their game. So it shows it's, it's growing. I think even like, you know, in New Zealand, I, aren't there just only races for women? Like there's, then they get like two to 400 people out, which is pretty neat. And yeah. on the East coast here, we have, we have the, uh, the buff Betty. So the buff Betty races down here for all female venture racers, Michelle F uh, Fauché puts those on out here. So a great right. job with that. You know, so definitely the buff Betty yeah. series is strong. Um, so we are seeing that growth, which is, it's, it's good. It's good for the sport. It's good for everybody to have that kind of inclusiveness. You want to see more of that. Um, and on top Absolutely. of that too, um, it's, it's really, it's, it's an incredible um, message we send to our young women that, that very often there's a lot of societal factors that are tilted against them for them to see the fact that this sport embraces that kind of diversity is encouraging it and is, and is making it worthwhile. It's good. It's just, it's good in general. It, it leaves, it leaves a nice taste in your mouth when you think about the sport. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's just been getting people to know what the sport of adventure racing is. Um, and, you know, and I think that's where the benefits of the sort of eco challenge, getting that, um, you know, being on, on television and, and having that reach that's, I just saw such a huge growth again after that aired, you know, because yeah. I remember back in the day, like I'd say adventure race and people were like, what's that? And you is, sort of, is, try it, to... is it a mud run? Is it a tough mudder? Yeah, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, 
you know, um, it was just like you always had to explain yourself. Yeah. And uh, now at least, um, yeah, it does so much to, to help the sport and, and then which just provides more opportunities for all, really. So, so you mentioned that you you work as a professional coach for aspiring adventure racers and you work with people. For, for those who are listening to the podcast or considering that, can you talk a bit about what are the, what are the expectations that a coach would have for a person who wants to race, who has a full-time job and wants to get their toes in the water? Like, what does it look like hours-wise per week? What does it look like gear, training? Like, how do you bring that to somebody who might not necessarily have all the resources at their disposal? Yeah, well, let's just start with the fact that, um, you know, the coaching aspect um, when I'm writing and working with an athlete is it's very individual. It's very specific to um, to that person, what they need, how much time they have to train. Um, I'm always after that, you know, work life family balance. I mean, I think adventure racing is just one should just be one aspect of what somebody does. Um, I want the training process to be enjoyable. It doesn't mean you don't do hard things and, you know, get uncomfortable, but it's struggle. Right. Exactly. It's about growth. You do, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it isn't, you're not hanging out. You're working. Totally. Totally. But I want them to enjoy the experience because I think that is all part of actually getting to that start line. Like it's, it's what you do day in, day out. You want, I, I like people to enjoy it. Right. Um, another thing though was making the training time count. So, um, you know, with that, when someone comes to me and they say, Hey, I've only got six, maybe eight hours a week to commit to training, then I'm going to make that training time count for them. Right. And then you've got other people, super flex, maybe very little work and, you know, they can do 20 hours. Okay, great. Then we, we look at that, but it's really individual. Um, you know, and through that, I'll do a lot of assessment on the strengths and weaknesses that that person is at when they come to begin the training. So yes, while some people um, purely, they, they need to work on their aerobic engine and really getting some volume in and getting time under their feet. Um, that's one, that's one athlete, but the other, on the other hand, you get somebody who's, you know what, they can go forever. Like they've got the They've got that um, aerobic development already in their body. They're comfortable riding their bike for, you know, four, 10 hours, whatever it is. But you know what? Maybe they struggle on on hills. So we're going to be working on power with them. Or maybe it's the, maybe it's the person who wants to go from not just um, walking through a race, but they want to be able to, like, run with their pack on. And they want to, like, increase the tempo that that team moves, you know. So we got to, you know, we're going to work on some running skills with that. Um it's so different and it's just so individual and specific to the, to each athlete. That's an um, important thing for people to hear, right? Because when you work with a coach, you, there's a level of, of, of being vulnerable to that person, right? You're sitting with another human being and you're, you're having an honest conversation about what, you, what you're good at and what you need to grow. And so what you're saying is, is as a coach yourself, your job is to recognize not only the, the, the quantitative stuff, <laughs> hours per week, previous skill set, you know, aerobic engine versus strength, power, all of that. But the fact that you're able to tailor the experience directly to that person as best as possible, which will be as successful ultimately as hard as the person wants to work, right? You could write the best plans in the world, but if he or she doesn't want to spend the time doing the training, well, it's only just words on a paper. It, that's exactly it. You know, I mean, I ask for a lot of communication, like a lot of my, I mean, my athletes write me usually, uh, you know, I hear from them every week and I like that. If not multiple times a week, it's there to make change. I'm there to make changes as life changes as their week changes as, you know, um, that's all just kind of a part of it. Um, but yeah, you ultimately, you want to, um, you want to be excited about the goals that you've set. They need to be your goals, you know, um, and a lot of times I'll, I'll have the conversation with them. Like, what's your why? So why are you doing this? What, what, why are you being driven 
you know, to, to the sport. And you want to have a really clear why, because when things get hard out on a race course, you know, you want to know why you're out there. Why did you choose this? Was it for the adventure? Was it to challenge yourself? Was it to see how, you know, it felt mountain biking at night? Like, I don't know, whatever their exact goal was, but you want to have a really clear why. And that needs to drive the training the day in the day out process. Right. Um, but then we can do all the training we want, but equally as important is the rest, the recovery, how you fuel yourself day in, day out. You know, I mean, I, when I started in the sport at 20, there was so much I didn't know and I didn't have the guidance on. And that led to, um, you know, a lot of hormone disruption, um, you know, a lot of things that I've had to work to really overcome, even like right through the last 20 years, like things that stayed with me because I didn't know. So um, now when I work with especially, you know, female athletes, I'm really on top of their, you know, their energy intake and, and is what they're eating daily matching the, the output that they're doing and trying to keep their hormones safe, their body safe. Um, you know, doing the strength training. Um, and so it's not all just hammering out these huge, these huge hours. Um, you know, we want to build up nice and strong so that you can handle the demands of the sport when you get out there um, and keep those injuries down and stuff. So yeah, the training is one side, but there's so many other elements um, that are going to go to one, having longevity in the sport, but two to, you know, achieving your goals and, and, um, and enjoying the process. And, and any endurance sport, whether it be adventure racing, ultra endurance, running marathons, whatever it is, you need to have a guide. Like there's only so much, you can only get yourself so far on your own, right? And you could build a lot of volume and a lot of base. And, but if you really want to grow in the sport is a, and you really want to make yourself at the pointy end of the race, you need to work with someone along the way. A coach has to really kind of play a role and things like that. Um, pivoting a bit back. Sure. back and even, even, even as a coach, even as I'll say, even as a coach, I have people I go to and I've got a, like, I am a strength coach too, but I work with a strength coach and I go, I've got other people that I bounce ideas off and, you know, we talk about different, you know, training methodologies and whatever to get to a certain point. Yeah. You know, like it's just important, like surround yourself, keep learning. Right. And just, and have somebody to give feedback, give me the support as well. So yeah, actually a life lesson there for us, right? The idea that when it comes to these big things that we want to do and these big things in our life, we need to have somebody else built into our life that will act as, as, as a feedback engine, right? That we could say to them, hey, I'm considering this, considering that. And he or she could point out to you the wisdom or the lack thereof that's involved in that. Like you're telling yourself the story and it makes a lot of sense. Say it aloud to somebody else. It's like, well, that sounds a little crazy, right? So it's good to have that person in your life and to have that person there. And I like the fact that you shared with our listeners that even as a coach yourself and a very well-established coach yourself, I, I know you're working with the Endless Mountains, which is the new five-day race coming to North America. This June, I know you're working with racers from there that you even talked about how you still yourself, even with your base of knowledge, you still need that kind of training and that kind of coaching along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's really important. I mean, it's, you know, I love the sport so much. I love seeing people get into the sport. I love seeing, um, you know, the racer who's been at it a couple of years, but is looking to, you know, in, you know, up their game. Um, I love seeing the person who's wanting to jump from 24 hours to their first seven day race. But I mean, I get the person too, who's, you know, never done anything. And they just, they're like, Oh, I want to try an expedition adventure race. You know, I mean, you can, you can attack the sport from so many different angles. Um, I think it's just being, um, you know, a couple of things on that. It's, it's being realistic with what your starting point is, um, you know, and just how much time you can, um, commit to it. Um, but 
yeah, I, I don't think there has to be a linear path to, to moving, to moving through it. It's really what excites you and what motivates you. And then what's going to drive the preparation to well, get there. You mentioned the, the, the linear nature of growth. I think, and, and you, you're, I'll say it and you're far more, you're far more skilled at talking about it is that working with a novice in anything, there's going to be progression and regression, right? You're, you want to get better at something. So you're going to get a little bad at it first and you get better at it as you grow in proficiency. But alongside that, you'll, I've known people who fall into the trap of, well, my coach wanted me to do six hours this week or seven hours or 10 hours. And the dog had to go to the vet and my boss kept me late at work and I only got in three, four hours. So I'm going to quit. I think we would tell somebody, if you're doing the best you can with what you have, it's good enough. As long as you're not skipping those workouts yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Full agreeance. Life happens, right? And um, there's always room to be flexible, to be creative. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing. Like, I think when you see somebody who wants it bad enough, they're going to find a way to make it work. And it doesn't, doesn't always have to be perfect how it was laid out or, or intended to be, you know what I mean? Um, and I like to keep it enjoyable too, you know, like, you know, a lot of my athletes, you know, whatever that looks like, let's call it once a month, they have this, what we call a choose your own adventure. And they, it's going to be a big endurance of their choice. They're going to go out with some friends, you know, whatever. I might give some advice as to what that needs to look like, but like, it's, Hey, this is still the journey. So like, let's make it enjoyable as you go out and explore, you pull out some maps maybe, and uh, yeah, get yourself into some some new terrain you've never seen or, or whatever it needs to be, right? There's there's always ways to be creative to make it work. I've worked with a, a cycling coach for years and years and years. And first off, he laughs at all the adventure racing we do, but that's beside the point. He'll put on the <laughs> on the race calendar, the training calendar from time to time, 100% open, go destroy yourself. And that's his, just say, go out and just put yourself into the ground, go as hard as you want for as long as you want, because you're going into an easier cycle. So you're right to that point. At the end of the day, this is this is a leisure time activity for us. We have if we're not pulling enjoyment out of it, if it feels like a job, we have to kind of reassess that. Not that we don't take it serious, right? We want to do well when we race, but when all said and done, this is a voluntary activity. Um, as as was said uh, at Untamed New England, this is these are contrived inconveniences, right? We throw yeah. ourselves these, and we have the privilege of making our life more difficult to learn things about ourselves. As Sarah Goldman was on the podcast recently shared, and she was fantastic. She says, for some people, every day is like an adventure race to them. They're battling every single day. We're lucky that we get to do this as a, as a leisure time activity. And we can't forget we have that privilege built into our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So important to remember that, right? It is. Um, yeah. You know, and I'll just add too, um, I think the demands of this sport, um, you know, are a lot on the body, especially as you get up there in hours, you know, um, you know, someone who does a lot of expedition racing might jump back down and say, oh yeah, like I just did a 24 hour, it was no big deal, but that's still 24 hours. That's hard on your body. Right. So I think to really take care and have that proper repair time after, um, is super important, you know, cause a lot of adventure racers just seem to be, they're just so type A that it's just push forward all the time. Like, you know, they love the feeling that training brings as well. Um, and I can relate to that, you know, I, I know 100%. it well, but mm -hmm. yeah, but it's like, no, you've got to also take the time to repair. And, um, a lot of the athletes that I've been working with for years and years, you know, we have a full on off season. It's like, they take a break we know it's coming. They take a few months off from coaching every year leave the watch at home, chill. Like you're not on training peaks. You're just purely having fun, taking your down seasons that you come back 
rested and refreshed and ready to do the work, you know, when that time comes. Yeah. And so. like the idea, like, so the winter months, for example, like December, January, February, especially in the Northern hemisphere with the poorer weather, that's the time in which you let yourself explore. You get, you get your energy back. You sleep a bit more like today, for example, like it's a, in the, in New Jersey today, it's a, it's a snowy, rainy, kind of a crummy kind of a day. I just wasn't feeling it today, you know, and, and yeah. but that's okay though. You're, when it's January, when you're sort of getting your feet back under you after a busy holiday season, it's it's okay to look at the calendar and say, you know something, today's a zero day. It's going to be okay. Like this isn't, you're not going to, you know, you're you're not going to leave everything behind by taking a zero day. A week of zero days, a month of zero days, mm, that might be an issue, but a day here, a day there, that's not going to do you in. It absolutely not right. You know, it does you. It, you're better just to let it go and not mentally torture yourself and and, and all the feelings that come with. Oh, you know, like you know, just let it go. Right. Right. Just, just move on. And, um, yeah, you know, I use, I, I do a lot of talks to, to folks too on just their off season and what things you can be working on in that, in your, in your downtime, your off season. I mean, for me, it's, it comes back yeah, to a lot of flexibility work and, and uh, the stretching and the yoga and just, uh, just toning everything down a notch, like really letting volume come down and, uh, you know, and then just having just super fun, fun with friends, you know, no, yeah. uh, no specific goals in mind. Just go play. Big all social aspect of the sport, being alongside our own kind. Because it's because to your point, this wrong with me earlier when you spoke about it. That at the, I always like to say that like, I wish we would have like a required, like you were, you're not, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to leave an, an ex- expedition race location until a day and a half after the race. Like getting together, seeing it, talking about the race, because you all go your separate ways, and you get home and while our families are delightful and lovely and they're good people, they weren't there. Right. So when you're telling them about, you know, the fact you had a, you had a bivy in a, in a Scottish bathroom, they nod their head at you politely, but they don't get it. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so so what, yeah. what, what races do you have coming up? What, what's your, what's your, what's on your docket for this season? What are you looking at? Yeah. I mean, I think it's still a little bit um, just with um, the state of the world, not being a hundred percent sure uh, on some things. Canada is not the um, easiest country at the moment to uh, be, um, maneuvering her through, but we've got Expedition Canada uh, mm-hmm. coming up. What a great in June. race that's going to be! What and a great race! Holy cow! Yeah, exactly. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's that's not too far from where I live, so um, I'm heading to that actually and racing with um, the race organizers of Eco Challenge. So they're uh, we were supposed to do it last year, but um, who, they got who, called who, away. Who's so. on your team? Who's your team? Um, so that will be uh, Kevin Hodder and uh brian finestone and uh phil so they'll be the should be the four of us out that's there so that's the plan that's a great team um, kevin did a hell of a job great guys yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of fun <laughs> a lot of fun um yeah just 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 great great people to be around you know um so so we're looking forward to that and then i'm just sort of letting the rest of it from the ar perspective just sort of see what the fall brings come late to summer. You. got it yeah, I'm gonna. I've got some personal um, sort of uh, FKT records, fastest known time stuff uh, out my way here. I'm gonna get after and maybe add another uh, ultra to the calendar uh, or whatnot. And um, yeah, just being that I'm back here in a new area, just a lot of exploring and a lot of gravel riding. And um, yeah, yeah and I, and family. I, I'm a mom, so I've got oh. uh, time with my with my little guys, precious. And uh, yeah, we got you know mountain biking with him is uh, so much fun. Is, what's and, what's uh, his name and how old is he? His name is Kiel and yeah. he's eight. Yeah. He's eight. And now he's eight. Yeah. And actually last September on our, we have back-to-back birthdays. Um, we, we share sort of a, yeah, we're a, whatever, I guess, 
uh, 23 hours apart, um, our birthdays. So we did our first adventure race as a family um, with a great race here uh, on Vancouver Island called the Mind Over Mountain Adventure Race, which is a sprint one day race. And um, yeah, so he was seven and we did it as a family. And it was like the most fun day I've ever had on a race course. That's the greatest. uh, greatest. Yeah. So we've got that lined up again for September to uh, three of us will go out and, and race that again. A year ago, I was involved. I helped to, um, I, I assisted the director of our, the trilogy, New York Adventure Racing Association trilogy. And Glenn Lewis came out with his son, Noah. Noah was six. And they just oh, wow. had the greatest time. The greatest, greatest time. Right? Just so much fun getting out there. There was a, a, a post not too long ago on the Adventure Race discussion group where somebody asked, how well does my child have to be to do a race? And the responses were great. They were like, as old, can they walk? Like, they'll be fine. Like, just reach out to the race director and give them a heads up. But like, I've never seen anybody turn a family away from an adventure race. Like you need to modify the right. course pretty specifically. Like if like you, know, I'm sure yourself, your expectations have to be, you know, in light of the age of the child, but like, holy cows, what a great experience. Oh my goodness. It's so much fun to share it. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, they're my biggest supporters and um, you, you know, it's, yeah, it was great. Like, you know, we mountain bike all summer and um, you know, he loves, he loves joining on some of the shorter trail runs. And I mean, just as a family, we're out my, my partner is a top uh, paddle boarder. And so, you know, we're out, we're out doing all the stuff together, but uh, just to tie it together and have so much fun. I mean, it didn't, didn't matter. The day was about him and us as a family. And, uh, but you know, he showed his competitive side and (laughs) of course I'm, I'm yeah, there was nothing wrong with that. And um, you know, of course my dream will be one day we'll do a big race together, but we'll see. He gets to drive that ship and see if that's something he wants to do. We joke, I work, I work in a school district and we're, we're very competitive sports wise. And the running joke is, you know, what's fun. Winning is fun. That's what's fun. Like go out there and try to win. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with wanting to win. You know, you win a fair and square, live it up, go get them. Yeah, exactly. And it it, it sounds like, it sounds like with the, with the 2022 year and the, the upside down nature of the world, it sounds like what you're doing, a lot of other adventure racers are doing. And what they're doing is they're circling one big race on the calendar for you. It's expedition Canada. And then what they're doing is they're allowing the rest of the world to come to them. You mentioned the FKTs, you mentioned the gravel riding, like, because there's, there's definitely something to be said for when you, when you race off and you race a lot, you build a base of, of aerobic skill set, planning skill set. where you, you can go after your own adventures and figure it out. Like, so in the beginning, you, we all kind of needed adventure races. We need somebody else to do the planning for us. They had to do the maps and the equipment. And all. Nowadays it's like, where am I going? I got 48 hours map in my hand. I'll see you later. Right. And that's a skill set that you yeah. build over time. It sounds like you're tapping into that for 2022. That's it. Yeah, it's exactly it. Um, you know, I have aside sort of all my coaching is so online based, you know, and I spend a lot of my day on the computer and, uh, you know, I don't get that face-to-face interaction with people as much. Um, I do on the side, I do some mountain guiding as well. So I'm an ACMG guide and I run uh, a few various uh, hut to hut or fast packing uh, running trips every year as well. So I choose really cool locations and then I'll take folks out, you know, we could be anywhere from three days to a week somewhere out in the back country. And, um, and I love that. That's just, just my way to share the trails and, you know, the remoteness with people and, uh, and get them out there and, uh, yeah, be on the maps myself. Thank you, Jen, for your time. As mentioned during our opening, Jen was kind enough to send over a discount code for any Dark Zone listeners who may be interested in her online spring AR courses. 
head over to www.jenseger.com and click on the 48-hour sprint adventure race training course. This, the code is DARKZONE as one word. If you've enjoyed this episode, please pay a visit to your podcast streaming platform of choice and leave us a review. That is the best way to spread the word. Also, always feel free to reach out to me, Brian, at ardarkzone.com. Your feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome. Have a great day and be safe out there.